Hi, my name is Jess. I serve as one of the leaders here at the Point Church at Federal Way. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to listen to one of our recent sermons. I hope that as you listen to this sermon, that you feel seen and heard and known by the God who created the universe. Here at the Point Church, that's what we strive to do. Make people feel seen, heard, and known so they see, hear, and know Jesus. I hope over these next few minutes that you truly begin to feel him and see him and know him. And if you ever have any questions, feel free to visit our website, thepointfw.com. Be sure to note, the point has an E at the end. We'd love to get in contact with you and answer any questions you have. All right, let's dive into the message. As we dive in today, as we begin uh, in this, uh, this passage, we'll be in uh, John chapter 4. Now, John is uh, a disciple of Jesus, a follower, a, a, uh, one of these guys who chose early on to say, I know that this guy is saying some crazy things. I'm going to follow him anyway. Not only am I going to follow him, but I'm going to teach others about him. And he did this, uh, and John actually becomes one of Jesus' closest friends. And he wrote the stories of Jesus' life, and he wrote these stories a little bit different than everybody else, which is why I love John so much. So there's three other stories of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and 90% of them are the same, and 90% of John is different. So we have this really interesting perspective of John, and and it's really interesting, this passage today in chapter 4, the very end of chapter 4, is actually a uh, kind of a mirror of another story that the other Gospels told, but it's not quite the same. He kind of shows the same type things, but with a different person. What it tells us is that Jesus is consistent with the content of his character. Jesus constantly is doing the same things, because he has an agenda, when he comes to earth, he's ushering in a new kingdom. And so to show people these, this new kingdom, he does the same things over and over and over again. It's why we see sermons repeated. It's why we see teachings repeated slightly differently. It's because Jesus did it a lot. There's a lot of people that didn't know anything. So he chose to repeat stories and things. So uh, before we dive in, if you have your Bible, I'd love for you to open it. It's in uh, the New Testament, about three-fourths of the way through. Uh, words will be on the screen, too, if you don't have your Bible. So don't worry about it if you don't. But, um, you know, I, uh, when I was in my younger years, um, was really, really into being fit. Like, I loved to lift weights. I loved to, I didn't love to run. I almost said run. That is not true. Uh, I loved to do some kind of cardio. Uh, mainly, uh, I would wake up early and play uh, racquetball with one of my friends. Like, that was my cardio because I couldn't make myself run. So I would just go and, you know, play racquetball at like 7 in the morning uh, and then lift in the evenings. And uh, I, lo- I wanted to be really, really fit. And so um, that was, you know, at the, the rise of Instagram when all of these people were discovering that Instagram was a way that you could kind of get yourself out there, um, and it was flooded, and still is flooded, with tons of people who are what we call fitness influencers. Um, They're people that show how amazing their body is, with very little clothes on, most of them, Um, but they they show how incredibly fit and strong they are, and they tell you that if you do these three things, 
that you don't need to do cardio. You can eat pizza if you want to, and you can look like this. Or, or they'll tell you you can't eat anything but these four things. If you eat, you know, fruits and nuts and meat, and that's it, then you'll look like me. You know, or if you just do these three exercises for 20 minutes a day, you'll look like me. And it's like it's all of these, you know, different people giving you all of these different things um, and all of these ways that kind of contradict each other, and no one really is telling you the whole story because I promise you that like doing leg lifts. 20 minutes a day doesn't make you look like them. <laughs> like it just it doesn't. No matter what you do, right? You 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 can lift all all the legs you want, and it's not you're not going to look like them. It's a very you know long arduous process to get there. But each of these people have followers like me, so I'll follow them on Instagram. And for a while, I might even ascribe to what they're saying. I might even say like, you know what? I love that workout plan. Let me just take that. And so I just follow a workout plan until I get bored, right? And then I'm like, oh, I really just want to go back to what I was doing. Or I'll follow a diet plan and say, yeah, like I'm going to go keto and I'm going to get, you know, all the supplements that goes with it and I'm going to do that. And then like I see crumble cookies and I'm like, oh, no, that, that didn't work for me, right? Um, so I, I, there's, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people who do this, right? Who, who see these influencers, who see these fitness people and they follow them. And sometimes they get to maybe the level of like being a disciple of a certain, you know, way of life, but then it kind of always turns back. Like that's just the reality. That has been for me. Like I followed tons of fitness pages and I started to unfollow them. You know, I'm like, yeah, I don't want to see that anymore. I feel bad about myself. My wife had a kid. Like, you know, that, that's my excuse as I gain weight, right? Like, well, you know, I'm gaining the weight that she hasn't gained. So, um, so that's kind of how I see it. But um, we, in, in today's passage, the end of today's passage, we see people who are really good followers of Jesus that fall short of becoming disciples. And I think the challenge for us is to differentiate between believing in Jesus and being a disciple of Jesus. Because there are some real differences and real things that we have to talk about when we're talking about authentic faith. So I'm going to start in chapter 4, verse 43. And I'm just going to read our passage today. After two days, he left there for Galilee. He was leaving Samaria is where he was. Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival, for they had also gone to the festival. He went again to Cana of Galilee, where he had turned water into wine. There was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum. When, they, when the man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son since he was about to die. Jesus told him, unless you people see the signs and wonders, you will not believe. Sir, the official said to him, come down before my boy dies. Go, Jesus told him. Your son will live. The man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. While he was going down, his servants met him, saying that his boy was alive. He asked them at what time he got better. Yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him, they answered. The father realized this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. So he himself believed, along with his whole household. Now this was the second sign Jesus performed after he came from Judea 
to Galilee. So let's kind of set the scene here, right? Jesus had just been in Judea, and it was in the southern part of Israel. We have read stories of, uh, uh, of him turning water into wine in Cana, where he is now, and then he went down to Judea, and he went to the temple because it was the Passover. And he went to the temple, and he went in, and he cleaned house. He told these people that they were not worshiping God, his father, the way that the father had instructed. Then he met a man named Nicodemus, who was one of the greatest theologians of his time. Not only was he a theologian, but he was also a politician. He's very important. And he comes to Jesus, and he thinks Jesus is going to tell him that it's easy to follow. And, he, and, and Nicodemus asks, hey, how can we get to heaven? And Jesus says, well, you can't get to heaven unless you're born again, which is very offensive to this man because he was born a man, and he was born a Jew. That was perfect in his time. He didn't need anything else. He was the high of the high. And then Jesus says, be born again. And he's like, but I was perfect the first time, which is probably what my daughter's going to tell me when she can start to talk. But so he, said, so he, was, he felt like he was perfect, and Jesus insults him in the deepest way and says, no, you've got to be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. That, that wrecks him. And then we see the story of the, of the beginning of this chapter about a woman who is the complete opposite of Nicodemus. She was a Samaritan woman who Jesus probably shouldn't have been talking to. She was hiding because she had been uh, left by five husbands. It wasn't even deemed to be valuable enough to marry again. She was living with a man who wasn't her husband. And Jesus extends eternal life to her, and through her story of redemption, her village comes to know Jesus. So now we see a story of, of juxtaposition here. We see the Samaritans hearing what Jesus has to offer, doing no miracles, and they believe. Then we have the Jews, the very people who have been waiting for him, God's chosen people. And what do they do? All they want to do is see the magic tricks. They don't really care about the Savior. They don't care about the Messiah. They want what he can do for them. And so this is the juxtaposition that we see, the Samaritans and the Jews. And so that's why when, we're, when you're reading through the, the Gospels, we, you need to pay attention to how stories are arranged. We would like to think that the storytelling was chronological, A to Z. But if you put all of the accounts together, you can tell they're not. They're grouped for a purpose. And I believe that this is the purpose. Why does John choose this story that's nowhere else to put after the last story that was nowhere else? He does it so that we can see this difference. He does it so that we can understand what authentic faith is. See, the Jews in this story were curious. They were curious about this guy who could change water to wine. They were curious about this guy who seemed to be powerful. Now, John has only captured the, the water and the wine miracle, but what we know from the other accounts is that Jesus has done multiple miracles. So they've been hearing about these miracles that Jesus is doing. So when he shows back up to Galilee, when he's now a hometown boy, they're like, yeah, Jesus, how you doing? Let's see what we can get from you. And they show up and they welcome him really warmly. 
And so it's interesting because there's a rebuke here in verse 48 where this man comes to Jesus in dire straits. In verse 48, Jesus replies, you people will never believe if you don't see signs and miracles. That seems like a pretty harsh rebuke to a father who's just trying to get his son healed, right? Well, I think the reason is, now there, there, there are differences of opinion here, but I think this is most consistent with the text. I think it's most consistent with who we know Jesus is. What Jesus is actually doing is he sees this hurting and broken man come to him, and he turns to everybody else and he says, you people have created this. You people not believing the things that I have taught, you've created This man who's only coming to me because he knows I do miracles. I'm here to save the whole world, but this man is only here for miracles because you people, you Jews, you who should know better, all you do is want things from me. And so I think the rebuke is not to the man, I think it's to the people. And I think that's further backed up in in a couple chapters in John 6, Jesus says the same thing again. In John chapter 6, he says, all you want are signs. They come to Jesus after he's fed 5,000 people, after he's walked on water and transported a boat from the middle of a storm to the other side. After he's done this, people come to him and say, hey, what's the sign that you're going to show that we know that you are actually who you say you are? And Jesus is like, what are you talking about? What about all the signs I've already done? So, So what had happened here is there had been a a culture created of just needing stuff from Jesus. But no one needed or knew what they actually needed, which was to be raised from death to life spiritually. And so Jesus rebukes these people, and then he turns to the man. You see, the difference here in these stories, this juxtaposition, the Samaritans, when they heard what Jesus said, they invited him to stay. And the more Jesus talked, the more they wanted from him, and the more they believed. The Jews, though, if all Jesus had to offer was talking, they didn't really want anything from him. You see, there's this interesting contradiction. If you look at verse 43, it says this, after two days, he left there for Galilee, Samaria to Galilee. Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So so Jesus, this is saying Jesus said he has no honor in his own country. But the very next sentence says, but when they entered Galilee, the Galileans came and welcomed him because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival. So either this is a biblical contradiction Either John is stupid, or Jesus is saying, hey, yeah, you're going to welcome me warmly? You like it when I'm here to do stuff for you, but you don't actually honor me. I think often we, as the current day church, do the same thing. I think we love to be curious about faith. We love to kind of pick and choose these things that Jesus can do for us. But when it comes to having authentic faith, we're not really that interested. If you're taking notes, I'd love for you to write this down. Authentic faith is not spiritual curiosity. It's deep commitment. Jesus wasn't offering them that were curious all of these signs and wonders. 
what Jesus was offering them, he would later on tell them, if you want to follow me, you have to pick up your cross every day. If you don't know what a cross is, the cross is an execution instrument. It is a, 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 Jesus is saying, I'm going to invite yourself to die to your, your selfish ambition every day if you're going to follow me. The spiritually curious don't do that. The deeply committed do. And so when we talk about authentic faith, what we have is a bunch of people who are just kind of curious. We don't have a lot of people who are deeply committed. The second thing that, uh, if you have your notes, I'd love you to write down is this, that authentic faith is not an emotional response, but it's an informed decision. See, the Jews here are responding with excitement. The Jews are having an, an emotional response to Jesus and who he is and what he can do for them. But they are completely missing what these signs actually point to. They like that Jesus can do things for them, but they don't like what he really has to say. And the more that Jesus stays in Galilee, and we'll get to this again in chapter 6, the more that he stays, the harsher he gets. The more that they are consumer-based, the more that they just want signs and don't see what the signs are pointing to, the harsher he gets with what his truth is. But listen to this. Faith often begins with an emotional response. And that's okay. In fact, when, when we are singing songs, music is, is actually scientifically shown to influence our emotion. Does that mean we shouldn't sing songs? No. What it means is that God created us to sing. God created us to hear music and to feel something. And as we sing truth about him, for me anyway, it causes me to break because I get to sing truths. My soul gets to sing truths that my words can't always express. That's what music does. I don't know if you've ever been a musician or been around musicians, but there's something about the way that you're able to express yourself through music that words just can't do it. But there's just not a way to... to script prose enough that worship or that music can't get there better. And so faith often starts with an emotional response. And that's okay. In fact, when you find out that there is the God of the universe that loves you and came to save you and rescue you from your own stupidity, that should elicit some kind of emotion, right? Imagine the, there's a, there, there is a, uh, a movie. It's called 13 Days. What is it, 13 Days? I don't remember the name specifically, but it's about the, um, the Thai soccer team, the, the boys who were trapped in a cave. And they, they were going to die. There was no way to get them. And, and a, a team of divers like, just did amazing things to get these boys out. Can you imagine the first time that those divers' heads popped above the water? These boys in here knowing that they are going to die, afraid for their very lives at 13, 12, 13 years old? Can you imagine the joy that welled up in their heart when they said, hey, we're here to be rescued? And that's just their earthly life. 
So yes, emotional response when we find out that we, are, we can be saved for eternity, like that should elicit something in us. So an emotional response is where faith often begins. Sometimes faith begins and it's a reaction to an incredibly emotional moment as well. We often see people turn to God during tragedy. In fact, I don't think there was uh, as much prayer in this country <laughs> ever as there was after September 11th, 2001. Everyone was looking for something and praying. Some, most of them didn't know who they were praying to. Some of them weren't praying to the God of the Bible. But everybody was looking for something. It was a response to an emotional moment. And both of these things are good. And that is what emotion should do. Emotion should drive us to the creator of emotion, right? It should draw us to the one who saw that, that we could express things beautifully and who beautifully created us. But if it stops there, it's not authentic faith. Because once that emotion goes away, it's gone. Authentic faith is based on putting trust in what we've heard. That's why it's not an emotional response. It's an informed decision. In verse 50, we see that this man responds in this way. He says, Jesus says, go, Jesus told him. Your son will live. The man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. This man just takes Jesus at his word. He shows up wanting something from Jesus. And when Jesus rebukes other people and then turns back to him, and he gets more desperate, his emotions are high. He says, sir, you have to come with me. My son is dying. And when Jesus says, go, your son will live. The man doesn't grab Jesus by the hand. The man doesn't plead more. The man doesn't force Jesus. He's a, he is called a royal official, probably works for King Herod. He could have forced Jesus. He could have called centurions. He could have done anything to, to coerce Jesus to come to his house. But in a moment of clarity, he says, I'll believe what Jesus said because of everything that I've heard about him. If he truly is the son of God, I can listen. If he truly is the creator of all things, I can trust him. And so this man is living 20 miles away. Now, 20 miles for us isn't that much, right? We jump in a car, we're there in 20 minutes. 20 miles by foot, it's a long way. So this man has a walk back home just try, you know, he doesn't have a cell phone, right? He doesn't like call and say, hey, Miriam, it's gonna be okay. You know, put him on the phone. Like that's not what happens. He has to walk in faith. Not knowing whether Jesus, what Jesus said was true or not. He had no idea. But because of what he'd heard, he makes an informed decision. I'm going to trust Jesus. And friends, we must trust Jesus. We have to take him at his word. And this, you know, this man should have had an emotional response, but instead he has an informed one. Jesus says, your son will live, and he trusts what Jesus says. But here's the deal. We can't trust him unless we know him. We can't trust what he says unless we actually know what he says. 
Again, it's the follower versus the disciple, right? I can say that I'm a follower of whatever fitness thing that I like, but if I don't actually know the ins and the outs, if I don't pay that you know thousand dollars a month to get the personal training right, if I don't ha- you know have them prepare their meals for me, then I don't really know. I may be a follower, but I'm not a disciple. I can't make a choice to actually live and trust what this person says because I don't know what they say. And I think so many of us have sometimes been that person. We're like, we trust in this ethereal, out there Jesus, but we don't actually know him and what he says. This man, these are the only things that he knew. He knew eight truths about Jesus, eight titles that have been given to Jesus and are probably circulating. Yes, there's a ninth miracle worker, right? We know he's working miracles. But these are the, the, the things that Jesus is being called around town. In John 1.1, he is called the word of God, the one who could perfectly reveal God to man. In chapter 1, verse 29, he is announced as the Lamb of God, who would be the perfect sacrifice for all sin. He's also called the Son of God, the unique Son of the Father, sent as a love gift to make us sons and daughters of God. He's been called rabbi or teacher, the one who could teach us how to be reconciled to God. He's called Messiah in fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. He's also called the king of the Jews who will sit on a throne forever. The prophet Daniel, a man in, old, uh, in, in early Israel, prophesied that Jesus would be called, the Messiah would be called son of man. And that this son of man would have a kingdom that was filled with every tribe and every tongue and every nation. We see this in John chapter 1, verse 51. And then the Samaritans, I love this, the Samaritans, not the Jews, not God's chosen people, but the ones rejected by God's chosen people. They call Jesus the Savior of the world, the one who would shed his blood to bring salvation to all humanity. These are the truths about Jesus. These are the things that we should know in order to make a decision to follow Jesus and not just be a follower, but be a disciple. What's really interesting is that all of these deal with sins and not signs. What this man knew about Jesus was that there was something that was inherently broken inside of him and that Jesus had come to fix it. He also knew that Jesus could do miracles But what he really knew, if he was really listening, and what we should really know, and what we should really listen to is those truths. That Jesus is the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice. He was the Son of God, fully God and fully man. He's the Son of Man, prophesied for thousands of years. He is a rabbi, the one that can teach us. He's Messiah, Savior of the world. Those are the things that we should know. Yes, I believe God is able to perform miracles. Yes, I believe that he can heal. Yes, I believe that he can provide. But I would follow him and be a disciple of him whether he could do those things or not because of these truths, because he took away my sin. The last thing that I want for us to write down is that authentic faith is not a single decision, but it's growing 
in dependence on Jesus. Not growing independent, but growing in dependence on Jesus. See, this Jewish royal official believed Jesus' word, and after he knows that his son is alive, not only does he believe that Jesus is the Messiah, he goes and tells his whole family, and his whole family believes that Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 51 says this, while he was still going down, his servants met him, saying that, this boy, that his boy was alive. Remember, this is a 20-mile journey, so he's probably stayed the night somewhere. This is the next day. He asked them at what time he got better. Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him, they said. The father realized that this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live, so he himself believed along with his whole household. So he himself, that's a strange way to say it. Uh, we wouldn't say it that way in English, right? He himself. I, I know if you're saying it's he, then I, that's himself. The reason it's translated like that is because it's called an emphatic pronoun in the Greek. This is so, this is a, such a response. So he believed so much that they had to use a pronoun twice. I don't know why they do it in Greek, but they do it. It's just something they do. He believed so firmly. And then his whole household believed. It's because he, we see this growth, right? He comes to Jesus for help. Then he has to put his trust in Jesus. And then finally, when Jesus proves himself like he always will, this man says, I believe. Not only do I believe, but my whole household will believe. That's his sons and his daughters and his wife and his servants. And probably since he was a rich guy, he probably had his mother-in-law and father-in-law. And he probably had his cousins and aunts and everybody that could come and, and kind of you know, be around and, and be living the life of luxury. The whole house comes to know and believe Jesus because of him. Because authentic faith is an informed decision because authentic faith begins to grow in dependence and I bet this man just went home and he couldn't shut up about Jesus. I was actually at one of our sister churches this morning and I listened to the same passage be preached by uh, a friend of mine named Jeff. And Jeff found Jesus when he was in his 40s. And in his 40s, he chose to follow Jesus, he chose to become a disciple. And because he couldn't shut up about Jesus, his family got a little concerned. <laughs> So they started to learn about Jesus. So he was baptized, and then his wife was baptized, and then his adult son was baptized, and then his other adult son was baptized. His whole family came to know Jesus because he couldn't stop talking, because he grew, he grew increasingly dependent on Jesus. And that's authentic faith. You see, uh, what we, what we always see is that authentic faith continues. In fact, there's a man named Paul. He was an early church planter. He would go around and he, would, he was a first missionary. He would tell people about Jesus. And he writes often, he writes in, in uh, Colossians. He talks about how, you know, we've been, once we were alienated and hostile in our minds as expressed in our evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy and faultless and blameless before him, if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel. 
Then the writer of Hebrews, this mysterious person that we don't really know, the writer of Hebrews put it like this, watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be any of you in evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage each other daily. While it's still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception, for we would have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end. So the difference between a follower and a disciple is pretty simple. A follower pops in and pops out. A follower can see, I kind of like this, I'm kind of curious. A follower may adopt some things that Christians do. But a disciple, someone that has authentic faith, will constantly and consistently choose Jesus. There's something about authentic faith that continues to persevere day in and day out. Now, I'm of the theological opinion that once, you're, once you have accepted salvation, your salvation is secure and you, you, you can't lose it. So I do not think that you can lose authentic faith, but I do believe that a single decision based on an emotional response to spiritual curiosity does not mean that you have authentic faith in Jesus. It's not that you... If you really love Jesus, you're going to have to keep choosing to trust in him. It's that if you truly trust and love Jesus, you will keep trusting and loving him. It's not based on you, it's based on him. It's not the amount of your faith, it's the object of your faith that will allow you to persevere. The best way that I've kind of heard this described is the analogy of marriage. So if I were to be asked by someone, hey, are you married? I would answer, hopefully, yes, I am. If they asked me, how do you know you're married? Well, I had a wedding, right? The county clerk gave me a piece of paper. I wear this ring. Of course I'm married. Well, those are all signs that at some point I had a wedding, right? Let me let you in on a little secret. There's a lot of people that had a wedding that ain't still married. A wedding, a ring, a piece of paper doesn't prove that I'm married. What proves that I'm married is that every day I come home to my wife. I grab that little girl and I kiss her. I look at my wife and I tell her I love her. I ask how her day was. We go to bed together some days. Some, sometimes I'm going to bed earlier than her. We talk. We live life. You see, my marriage doesn't just, it wasn't a one-time decision. It wasn't like I met Jess and I was like, oh, she is so gorgeous. I just have to marry her. And then we ran to a chapel and now we're married for all time and I can do whatever I want not authentic love. That's not authentic marriage. Just like a one-time choice based on an emotional response to spiritual curiosity is an authentic faith. Best way that I think it was described was written in this commentary, and it says this, for Christians, faith starts each morning when our feet hit the floor. Faith goes to work and comes back home at night. Faith falls asleep with us. For 2,000 years, a synonym for Christian has been believer. Not a once believed, but a believer. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? 
Is your faith authentic? Are you a follower? Or are you a disciple? Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for these people. Thank you for the children that you have given us. Lord, I pray that we as a church would show our children what authentic faith looks like. Lord, I pray that our faith would grow, that it wouldn't just be spiritual curiosity, Lord, that it wouldn't just be emotional responses, that it wouldn't be a one-time decision. Lord, that it would be continued dependence based on informed decisions that would always and forever seal us to you. Lord, I pray that every day we remember that our faith starts when we, our feet hits the floor, that it goes to work with us and it comes home with us, that it goes to bed with us. That Jesus, that in Christ we live and move and have our very being. Lord, I pray that my faith is authentic. Lord, that I am able to lead this church toward you, the true Christ, the true gospel. Lord, I pray that I can say, as Paul said, that I can invite people to follow me as I follow Jesus, that I am a disciple, that I know what he says, that I do what he says, and that I lead, bring others to know and do. Lord, thank you for seeing us and hearing us and knowing us. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.